Hello and welcome to another episode of Wither the Luniversity, the podcast of the Peerless Review. My guest today has been prominently in the news uh, surrounding higher education lately. His name is John Saylor. He is currently Senior Fellow and Director of University Policy at the National Association of Scholars. We will probably refer to that as NAS moving forward. Um, but he has been researching in particular how DEI is influencing processes of faculty recruitment and hiring, um, and also how it's infecting the materials, the, the documentary aspects of faculty searches. He recently had a piece of the Wall Street Journal called How Diversity Policing Fails Science. Um, in reaction to that piece, Texas Tech uh, stopped requiring, I think it's it's DEI statements um, in their hiring process. He's also recently been featured on the Free Press, um, and he's been doing some great work. Welcome, John. Thanks for talking with me. Yeah, thanks for, so much for having me. So you've been, how long have you been on this beat for now? Like maybe six months or so in terms of really digging into these questions of, of hiring and stuff like that? Yeah, my interest in faculty hiring and the way it's been distorted by DEI um, started as I was investigating the way universities were um teaching civics, the way that they were uh, kind of modifying their curricula to uh, incorporate social justice goals. And I kept running into this issue that uh, has been raised for a long time, the, 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 these, these formal diversity, equity, and inclusion requirements for hiring, promotion, and tenure. Um, and so a lot of a lot of my uh, kind of research and reporting over the last six months has really um, just just kind of flo- uh, uh, um, you know come from things that I've run across as I've I've really dug into university policies and a lot of it has just surprised me and so I write about it and I think it surprises everyone including uh, you know many in university administration. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about the different ways that you found that DEI and so-called social justice initiatives are manifesting themselves in uh, the process of faculty recruitment and hiring. Yeah. So, um, you know, there's a there's a really uh, famous, well, well, widely cited op-ed by a mathematician named Abigail Thompson that appeared in the Wall Street Journal in 2018, where she compared the use of diversity statements to uh, the past use of loyalty oaths in university faculty hiring. And now, this was especially relevant to her because she is a professor at UC Davis, and it was the UC system that uh, really uh, had this battle during the McCarthy era where uh, faculty were required to, to sign various statements of their, their loyalty to uh, the, the United States and, uh, you know, potentially statements saying that they were not involved with any operations uh, of the Communist Party. Um, and, you know, that created a, a, a large debate around academic freedom, because obviously, if you're saying, uh, uh, if you require people to, to, to sign an oil, a loyalty oath, then that um, establishes a kind of orthodoxy 
on campus. And so that brings in not only um, issues of kind of like hypothetical academic freedom, it also it also raises some First Amendment issues uh, surrounding free free speech because academic freedom is treated in First Amendment law as a kind of free speech issue. So that happened in the UC system. And what came out of it was actually a, a, a system-wide policy saying that no political test shall ever be administered for faculty uh, hiring. Um, and so actually, it's kind of ironic then that uh, what has happened since about 2010 in the UC system is that uh, the policy that is now known as diversity statements, mandatory diversity statements, um, was developed and uh, its implementation was sort of, um, you know, refined. And the, uh, it, it ultimately, the policy was, was kind of disseminated through the UC system. And so Abigail Thompson points out in her, her op-ed that, hey, look, we, we have this policy no political test shall be administered, but at the same time, now we are requiring for, for promotion or for hiring, and in some cases then, and many more now, promotion and tenure, uh, you have to write a statement detailing your contributions to, uh, uh, you know, past and future contributions to this catch-all phrase, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And, you know, the argument is that while these concepts sound, sound good in, uh, you know, can sound good in theory, in practice, uh, and I would certainly argue this with a lot of examples, that the, the term diversity, equity, and inclusion almost always implies a narrow set of ideological commitments, which means that you're really at being asked to do something akin to these, these uh, loyalty oaths that were already dealt with by the UC system. And, you know, also it's widely acknowledged that they're, they're bad for academic freedom. That's, that's seen as an era where, um, you know, academic freedom was violated and we've come out saying that, uh, uh, you know, that kind of policy shouldn't happen. So what we're seeing is, uh, uh, you know, some people might put it as a, almost a new new McCarthyism, but instead of uh, promoting this kind of anti-communism, it's promoting a, a very different ideology rooted in, um, you know, I, I would, would genuinely argue rooted in critical race theory. Which in turn is is rooted more or less in Marxism. Um you know, and so ironically, we moved from this uh, anti-communist loyalty oath almost to one that smacks of uh, certain communist principles. Um, so you've seen that they're requiring diversity statements. And I think somebody who might be listening to this conversation might say, what's wrong with that? Um, and and I think that it's really just that uh, it's not enough in these statements to say, well, of course, I value diversity, you know, Um that's a good thing, right? It, it goes beyond that to where you have to have uh, essentially participated in some form of agitation, right? Uh, to advance these, these sort of, uh, pieties. Um, and if you say something like, well, yes, I once mentored a woman. I think this was in some of your recent work, right? They'll say, well, you know, women are indeed, you know, an aggrieved class, but they're not one of the aggrieved classes. And so that's not enough. And, you know, you'll, you'll lose points for that. Um, I imagine that the, the university's defense of these statements would run something like this. Look, we value diversity. 
right? We're well within our rights to ensure that the people that we hire value similar things as, as we do. So that there'll be a good fit for the missions, uh, mission of our institution and, and the objectives that we have in our learning outcomes. Uh, this is not a political test. It's just to see if there's an alignment of values. How would you respond to that? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because that is an argument you get. Uh, you also get a lot of people making the argument that these statements really just aren't that uh, meaningful in any direction. And there's some truth to that insofar as at a lot of universities, the policy is a top down policy. Basically, some high level uh, DEI officer says, all job listings need to have diversity statements or maybe a, a, a com diversity committee says, let's make every job listing in our department um, require a diversity statement to show our commitment to the cause, but it's not incorporated often into the actual rubric for evaluating, uh, uh, you know, job candidates once they once they've actually applied you just as one uh professor at a at a uc school told me we look at the statements and then we kind of just don't really care about it that was his department although some other people's departments uh at a, 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 I, i've heard within the uc system other other departments are much more aggressive about applying the statements so there's a lot of confusion around uh how they're actually applied and there's a lot of can uh, just, you know, to, to what extent they're weighed at all. And if they are weighed, there is this argument that, hey, well, they, it, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion is basically a, um, a positive value. And it's okay for us to ask our, our faculty to um, ascribe to this positive value. And they might even say, and a lot of people would say, like, who would object to this? This is just something that every reasonable person would would agree with. And so it should be totally fine to to show your demonstrated commitment to this this kind of, um, you know, the these kinds of principles. And so, um, you know, there are two things to say. First, is that, um in practice, we have pretty good evidence that when they are actually valued highly, these statements, um, you know, the, the concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion, it entails uh, a much more narrow set of views. And so you mentioned earlier that I published this article for the Wall Street Journal, where I actually got a hold of the evaluations of uh faculty job candidate DEI statements and some DEI presentations that they gave that the, the DEI committee ended up interviewing faculty members. And so they gave like this little report on these, these candidates' potential contributions to DEI. And um, if you look at those, there's a clear ideological gloss. So um, one, one candidate, the, 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 they were penalized, and this is basically a direct quote, this candidate said that they uh, DEI is not an issue for them because they intend to treat all of their uh, students equally. This shows a lack of understanding in uh, uh, of equity and inclusion issues. Another candidate uh, they they penalized for saying uh, for for in their words not understanding the distinction between equity and equality, which, as a lot of your listeners probably know. Um, that distinction is basically very, very loaded, and it, it's pretty much a talk, talking point that only comes up in these kind of ideologically charged uh, DEI 
seminars. The idea is that equity is um, not equality of opportunity, but rather it's equality of outcome. And that's what you should pursue if you're pursuing diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's very much ideologically charged. Um, at the same time in those documents, you have uh, instances where people were praised for um, for saying that they have a very, uh, or for saying that they care about things like unconscious bias and microaggressions, which on principled grounds, many people would say those are terrible concepts to employ in any situation. Um, or, or, you know, one person was praised for including a land acknowledgement in his talk. Now, those are not simply uh, uh, value neutral, um, you know, statements. The clearly the DEI committee at Tex, in Texas Tech's uh, biology department, they came in and they had a very idiosyncratic and ideologically driven understanding of what DEI means. And I would just add that, uh, you know, these statements are often required to be evaluated in that way. So going back to the UC system, UC Berkeley has this uh uh, they call it the rubric for evaluating faculty contributions to diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. And that rubric actually kind of reflects what we saw at uh, Texas Tech, where they say you, uh, a candidate, candidate should get a low score if they intend to ignore the varying backgrounds of their students and treat everyone the same, es essentially punishing candidates for expressing the desire for race neutrality, even though a lot of people on very, very uh, principled grounds would say race neutrality is a good thing. I would say that. I think it's substantively bad to punish people for saying that they want to be race neutral. Um, you know, and, it, it, and, and there are actually a lot of examples within just that rubric that um, kind of uh, uh, confirm that it's not just going on at Texas Tech. It's not just a one-off thing. To the extent that these evaluations are done, uh, they're done in an ideological way, which actually kind of makes sense because this concept of diversity, equity, and inclusion is, uh, uh, you know, uh, when, when it is applied, it is often applied in, in ways that, that would, you know, whenever people read my reporting, a lot of them are very, very shocked that universities are openly endorsing these concepts. They are openly adding critical race theory to their, to their uh, you know, required training sessions. They're openly calling for um, these, these very ideologically charged definitions of racism and anti-racism to be enshrined in university policy. And so, so that is actually just like a good argument that these, these statements violate academic freedom. Basically, DEI connotes a very uh, narrow set of ideological views and uh, therefore requiring faculty to, to, to sign off on their commitment to DEI basically requires them to, to sign off on a narrow set of ideological views, which brings up the same issue that the loyalty oaths issue did. And, and we have a, a pretty good framework for saying that that violates academic freedom. But I'll note, even if it didn't, uh, I think it's it's fair to say that this is just a very bad uh, kind of way to prioritize faculty job candidates when you're hiring people. You know, it, it, it's all the more vivid when you're talking about uh, candidates in, in biology. We're talking about uh, virologists right. and immunologists and uh, cell biologists who often research uh, cancer. These are people whose whose expertise in their discipline matter 
you know, greatly. And I'd say expertise in your discipline matters greatly, regardless of what discipline it is. We we have universities not so that people can promote DEI or or promote particular social causes. We have universities so that people can, uh, um, you know, excel in their scholarship, regardless of the discipline. And this is basically a massive statement of priority, saying that your discipline is is on par with this. Uh, a social goal that has nothing to do with your discipline and is ideologically charged and, and you know, is essentially a, a, a kind of stand in for progressive political priorities. That should that, 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 you know, anyone should agree that that's terrible. So now I can also imagine somebody saying to you, John, you're right, that these things can be abused. Right. Uh, in the hiring process. But I can hear someone saying, but that's not the intent. Right. Um, and. For myself, I think, no, that's precisely the intent. Precisely the intent is to serve as a, a screening tool here to ensure ideological conformity and to make sure that they are not going to end up with problem professors like myself. Um, what's your take on that? Do you think that the, the, there's some bad actors who use this in kind of a, a bad way or is that usage the point? Yeah, um, I would say it, it's hard to know what people intend when they institute these policies. And a lot of uh, what I have found when, you know, reading these massive university level DEI plans or listening to DEI um, uh, training sessions and things like that is that there's a lot of thoughtlessness. It's just very evidently thoughtless in a lot of ways. People basically see that a policy is um, widely adopted, or they see that a particular definition of racism is widely used. And this is really just my impression, but often it seems like they're just passing along what's handed to them. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't really be surprised if there are a lot of people who just haven't really thought about it. But what I would say is that regardless of the intention um, these these statements are basically an invitation to uh, police people for their for their dissenting political views, and that doesn't it doesn't even matter if you use the this ideologically charged Berkeley rubric or you know the rubric from Emory University might is 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 genuinely even worse. Um, <laughs> Yeah, the it it doesn't really ultimately matter if you you even use those rubrics or if you have any intention of excluding people on the basis of uh, their viewpoints. It's likely just going to happen because this is a this is kind of an ideologically fraught topic. It's very hard for people to uh, approach it in an unbiased way, especially in the environment of the university. So I would say even actually if you include certain safeguards against uh, violating academic freedom. And, and people have uh, posited different ways to do that. Um, yeah, in practice, I think you get the same effect. There are certainly people all throughout academia who, who very evidently do want to just, uh, you know, they, they very evidently don't want certain people to be involved. In fact, there was, this, there was a, a, a really notable example of a trustee of uh, a community college district in California who said uh, essentially that he wanted to put all uh, all faculty who disagreed with their equity agenda, uh, send them to the slaughterhouse is what he said. 
And, you, you know, I think that's an attitude that a lot of people have. They think, well, if you disagree with this stuff, you must be a, a, a racist and a bigot and you've got to get out of here. Your scholarship can't be any good. And this, this is not a part of our values. And at, at that point, yeah, I think they're, they're openly intending to discriminate on the basis of viewpoint. And they probably don't care so much about academic freedom in the first place. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I worry about sometimes is like, uh, if you are a say you just finished a PhD and you're pursuing an assistant professorship and you're required to write one of these DEI things and you don't really believe it, but you understand you have to play the game. Right. Uh, and then you, you get, let's say you get through all of the sort of gatekeeping, get hired. Um, and let's say you even get tenure. Uh, at that point you feel like, okay, well now I can take the muzzle off, but I wonder if these DEI statements can then be, used to sort of retroactively jeopardize someone's career because if you then later become critical of these ideas they can go back and say well look when we hired you you said that you had these commitments right and now we find out that this that you don't um i i think it would require some some sort of formal mechanism in the evaluation criteria uh and i think that that's really what's motivating the push to put it in is they want to ensure that people who can't, uh, who can't abide by these things, but can speak the language, that they have a means to weed them out if they happen to get through. So it's another layer of gatekeeping. It's it's a fail safe, really. Yeah, and I would say that that's kind of uh, murky because um, you know. Uh, for for a couple of reasons one is that this uh in an attempt to bypass some of the more obvious criticisms of diversity statements typically instead of being statements on your beliefs they are uh they are phrased as statements uh that describe your past and planned actions to advance a particular cause. Now, I mean, we we could step back and ask, okay, so you're asking for my past and planned uh, actions to advance a cause, kind of entailed in that is the desire for me to embrace the cause, which is a particular belief. It's kind of like asking you to... uh, uh, demonstrate that you that you've gone to mass and and done your confessions every week well okay i mean those are actions but at a certain point it might involve that might uh imply that you you're you're asking for a set of uh uh you know religious commitments it's like saying uh you know what have you done and what do you plan to do to support trump 2024 yeah or make make america great again Uh, you know, like, okay, well, uh, uh, you know, in, in theory, you could do all of the, all of these actions without believing a particular thing, but let's, let's be real. We know what we're talking about here. Um, and so, yeah, it, could a faculty member end up kind of being self-incriminating by, by going along and then suddenly reversing course? I think it's very hard still, fortunately, for um, people to get rid of tenured faculty even if they uh, uh, really, um, you know, buck the orthodoxy. And so at this juncture, I think you would have enough cover to, to, to avoid 
DEI statements and DEI evaluations for promotion and tenure be um, um, coming back to bite you once you get tenure. I think I think that that's probably the case. It, it's hard for me to imagine somebody using that as the mechanism to to get someone um, you know fired from a tenured post. That said, there is something interesting about what you're saying where it the the policy in in many ways seems to lay the groundwork more than it um, explicitly initiates like this vast regime of um, requirements that have all uh, uh, come come to pass. You know, when I look at, for instance, promotion and tenure policies, often what it what they involve is again just kind of showing that you have like um, taken time to to mentor students or uh, they're they're broad enough that it seems like they're they they are written in such a way that um, honestly it seems like sometimes these these policies are written in such a way that uh, administrators want credit for doing something, but they don't actually want to rock the boat and, and actually do anything, at least right now. But the problem is, is once you have a policy in place that says we should consider diversity, equity, and inclusion in promotion and tenure, there's nothing stopping someone else from coming along later and saying, hey, look, it's a part of your job. It's a condition for your promotion and tenure to support diversity, equity, and inclusion. And whereas the last guy defined it in a very broad way that that was, um, you know, perhaps genuinely not all that uh, uh all that uh, uh, demanding, we have a different definition that is, you know, far more substantive and far more demanding. Again, a lot of the issue with the policy is is also simply that it invites and gives license for um, pretty much an unending amount of uh, uh, kind of like, uh, you know, gatekeeping, even if not, even if it, does, it hasn't happened in the present. Well, this is my concern. I mean, my uh, department, uh, over my many objections over the last year and a half, just published an anti, a department anti-racism statement. And on many occasions, I asked them, I said, look, you know, me and a few other faculty who really are not as outspoken as I am, um, might not agree with these principles. There's ways that you could craft this statement that it doesn't put words in other people's mouths. Um, and instead, a select group of faculty went off to craft the statement. There was no vote on whether or not the faculty agreed with it. Like that would have helped me because at least then they could say, all right, well, we lost 72, you know, 30, right? I guess we're the, the losers, right? There was no vote. It was just put on the website. And it states very clearly that we, the faculty of the English department, value the uh, practice of these principles in our teaching and our research, right? And what worries me is it's like, okay, well, I mean, first off, I'm offended that they would deign to speak on my behalf. But more than that, I'm worried that five years down the road, they say, well, look, you know, we don't have DEI requirements in our tenure criteria right now, but we've already said that we all agree on these principles. So if we do, why shouldn't we have DEI in our principles? If this is really something the department believes, then why shouldn't the, the tenure criteria be revised to reflect those commitments? And I suspect that that's really what it is. It's kind of just a crowbar to get in there so that 
that later on we could say, well, geez, we really aren't living these out if there's ultimately no policy means to to discharge someone who is not furthering those commitments. Um, so I think yeah, that know, it's crazy because there's really uh, this. The, there are so many of these these tools that allow uh, the policies to be ratcheted up. So at, on one hand. The term DEI is vague and euphemistic, and it sounds genuinely really good. And it's the kind of thing that a lot of people are simply afraid to object to on the grounds that on, on those grounds. So on one hand, you have this euphemistic term that that it which is very costly to object to, but uh, very you know um, it, ultimately it actually signifies uh, a, a lot of substantive things. And then on the other hand. Um, certain claims that are tied to the concepts of DEI are, are once, once, you know, once they're established as true, they're almost seen as unassailable. So claims about race, racism, um, you know, the, 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 the edicts, I, I, you know, I hesitate to paint with broad brushstrokes because there are a lot of different ways these policies are applied, but often it's the case that these edicts simply uh, make it so it's very, very hard to object to certain people saying that we we feel like we've been discriminated against or we feel like there's there is racism here. And right. once you have this unassailable claim, then then a lot of people can 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 truly ask for whatever they for whatever kind of policy concessions they want, whether that's changing the curriculum, changing promotion and tenure standards, uh, um, you know, shaping the the research agenda of a university, shaping the hiring agenda. Um, you, you know, it, it it's um, it's remarkable to see how easily the entire DEI bureaucracy grows. But if you consider those kinds of mechanisms, it's, it, it, it really makes a lot of sense. So I wonder, um, you, you uh, elicited um, a actual policy response from Texas Tech, uh, and there are some other universities that you have directly mentioned in your reporting. Have you had any response directly from these universities? Uh, have they contacted you, reached out, um, anything? Yeah. For the most part, no. The one exception would be in in my role as policy director for the NAS, if there are people within universities who are uh, sympathetic to uh, the kinds of things I do, I am kind of available, or sorry, I said, I might've said policy director, technically director of university policy. Um, um, but yeah, I, I, uh, it, it's kind of a, baked into my job to talk to people about uh, university policy if they're interested. That said, what I was expecting from Texas Tech was a letter to the editor responding, saying that I am wrong and here are all the reasons that these statements are good. I was very delightfully surprised that they decided that they agreed with me and decided that this policy was a bad thing. Um, I think that one of the obvious reasons for that is that Texas Tech is in um, a very red state and they are they are responsive to um, the, 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 the rules given by uh, a conservative governor and conservative legislature. And so they recognize that, um, you know, they, if they don't address the policy, then they could have sort of uh, um, 
there could be legal remedy or, 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 or rather legislative remedies to it. And they, they, it seems like they just wanted to get out ahead of it. Good for them. Very glad that they did that. We'll see how it works out in implementation, but that seems, that seems to be all good. But yeah, most of the time, I don't, I don't hear anything from university administrators or they respond and say, well, you know, this is really a great policy and I can't believe you hate diversity or something like that. On the last episode, I, I talked to Scott Yenner, who is a professor at Boise State and is now um, at the Center for the American Way of Life. And he said that uh, phase one in challenging the corruption of higher ed is stigmatization, to stigmatize them and scandalize them for what, what they're doing. And I think that it's true that a large swath of the public that supports public universities has no idea that this is going on. And so the real key is making the public aware, um, which essentially embarrasses the universities. Uh, I think if if I had to, you know, if, if I had to guess, this is where the success of your reporting is coming in, is you're embarrassing. Um, yeah. They yeah. would really rather that the public not know what's going on and this stuff remain behind closed doors. And so if it's that kind of campaign of stigmatization, embarrassment, it's very important that faculty, even if anonymously, uh, will divulge maybe materials to you, talk to you if they have information about these these uh trends do you think that that's that's the game the stigmatization and and humiliation game yeah and we'll we'll see i have sort of a whole series of articles and reports uh that that uh many of which are finished and scheduled to come out that um will kind of test that hypothesis and also test how far things go um, you know, in some states, it's not likely that anyone will care about any of this. In right. some states, people will care about some of it, but not all of it. They, they'll, they'll, and I think it's intuitive to almost everyone if they, if they get a, a good faith, uh, explanation of the DEI statement policy, it's intuitive to almost everyone that there's something wrong with that. Um, but, uh, you know, they might still be okay with universities having a DEI office or putting on DEI trainings or, you know, policies that are that I would sometimes uh, expose and bring up and show the downsides of. Um, some people are not going to be moved by that. So I'm I, what, what I'm interested in doing is exactly what you say, continuing to expose these policies that, that I, I genuinely think are crazy and newsworthy and uh, very well could get the attention of universities. I don't know, uh, you know, with, with universities in, in Michigan and Wisconsin and, and Indiana, who knows? Who knows how responsive they are to this kind of uh, criticism, but the best way, the best thing I think to do is to, to try to uncover things and find out. And I've, I've been very delighted to, to, to kind of receive many tips and uh, inside information about the, the sort of, um, you know, um, uh, the, the, the very specific operating uh, mechanisms that, uh, uh universities use in this kind of evaluation because that that is an extremely useful tool for me to come in and uh, um, get documents through public records requests and 
and I and, and yeah, I would just say stay tuned because there's a lot there's a lot more where this came from. So I do have one question for you after this, but while we're on the subject, if someone wanted to talk with you or provide you with some information, what's the best way that they could reach you? Uh, I'm very responsive to messages on Twitter. So I, I, I'll throw that out there. My Twitter handle is John D. Sailor, S-A-I-L-E-R. I will say it's actually pronounced Siler, but nobody knows that. And now, uh, you know, you've, you've got the uh, my inside information uh, now. Siler. Um, but I, Siler, we should stress, yeah. it was a little unclear that your last name is spelled S-A-I-L-E-R, right? Yes, correct. Uh, so it looks like a misspelling of sailor and it is, uh, looks like it should be pronounced sailor, pronounced sailor. Uh, uh, you're welcome to follow me and message me on Twitter, but also my email address, uh, is, uh, sailor at nas.org. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty responsive to these things and, and love getting tips because that's pretty much, uh, you know, at this point, a big source for, for my reporting. Great. So last question. Let's say we, we beat the uh, DEI Hydra in faculty hiring and uh, that all these universities stop using diversity statements, sort of stop keeping a finger on the scale in various other ways on, on who they hire or who gets through the gates. What would be the next target after this? What's the, the next uh, frontier in, in sort of reforming um, the institution. Yeah, I think of this in, in uh, really two steps. So the first thing that we're going to have to do, and I, I'm convinced that it really is only going to come for the most part through public policy, is excise the the kind of growth of DEI that's taken over in the universities. And I think I think it's appropriate at this point. Appropriate at this point given what we know about these departments to say, we don't want any of this. And so, uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute has released that, that fabulous uh, um, model legislation that was developed uh, in close collaboration with the, the NAS actually. So, you know, I think it's a, a fantastic set of bills and um, that's a start to, to get rid of the DEI bureaucracy to specifically ban diversity statements. But you still have, um, I think, uh, a major issue, a couple of major issues that uh, still face universities. For instance, you have a, a kind of lack of good personnel to, to function in university administration and university leadership. Because for years, um, people who have a commitment to things like the traditional liberal, liberal arts, to academic freedom, to a view of the university that is is more in line with a classical understanding of education. Those people have just been driven out of the university, and 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 that creates a big problem for uh, um, kind of like the the high level higher higher education administration. I mean, related to that is just the fact that many faculty jobs now, as you very well know. Uh, are designed to, even if they don't solicit a diversity statement, they basically have that content written into their uh, the, the job requirement by way of, um, you know, asking for a, a specialty that is essentially uh, rooted in kind of a, a social justice activism or ideology. So I wrote an article recently about Ohio State Ohio State University initiated this massive hiring spree that uh, um, was really made it so almost every job 
within the university was focused on race, gender, social justice, critical, critical theory, uh, or something like that. And so you get these ridiculous job listings, like the philosophy department's only job that the only job that they listed was philosophy of race, which included things like epistemology and race or the philosophy of science and race. This is, this is nonsense. That is not actually, I, I I'm convinced philosophy of race is not actually a real discipline there. The, my favorite though, was their uh, department of Slavic languages had a position in indigenous Siberian studies, which is so, so funny. And it was like this mix between, you know, kind of legitimate uh, 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 areas of, of, I guess, Siberian studies and, you know, kind of anti-colonial, decolonial uh, uh, lingo, which which uh, I would guess the department did not want to actually include, but, but it's clear that that was the only way they were going to get a faculty line at all. And so we've kind of distorted the faculty very considerably. And, and both of those first two points has, has led to a curriculum that either by design or de facto because of the, the, the personnel issue um, is, is really, really distorted. And the education that students are going to get is, is going to be really, really tilted towards a kind of social justice activism. And there's just a lot of good evidence for that. If you ever look at a, a, a syllabus or look at the course listings at just like a regular public university, um, so, you know, those are, those are really big problems. And I think the only way to solve those problems, uh, ultimately in the long run is kind of to engage in a multi-year, multi-generational capacity building project that's going to have to involve uh, a lot of buy-in from, uh, um, you know, state legislators. It's going to have to involve a lot of buy-in from nonprofits, uh, like ISI, or other organizations that help kind of bring up students who are interested in academia. It's going to have to involve think tanks like the NAS, but also like other other think tanks who have done good work on this issue. Um, and ultimately, it should. I, I think that something like that needs to to uh, culminate in trying to aggressively build new things within existing institutions. Higher education is not going to go away. Like I am not the kind of person who says everyone needs. A college degree. I actually think we overemphasize college degrees, and it's good to take step public policy steps saying no, not everyone needs to go to college. We actually need to create pathways for people outside of college. But at the same time, we are not going to stop needing scientists. We're not going to stop needing to credential doctors and lawyers. We are not going to stop uh, uh, needing people who are trained in uh, the liberal arts because the liberal arts, I think, are are, are inherently valuable, and there's cert- there are certain people who ought to have a good education like that. So we can't abandon higher education. And I don't think we have the capacity to rely solely on new institutions. I think we need to build, we need to renew within. And I'm, I'm, I'm heartened by the, the fact that places like the University of Florida, the University of North Carolina are building new schools within their universities that are focused really on these ideals of academic freedom and, uh, you know, maybe kind of a traditional uh, um, liberal arts education. And I, I think we just need more of that. We need more creative versions of that. And that, that has to be a part of the, the picture of it, it, within this larger capacity building project that's going to be the only way if we want to renew the universities, which I think is really, really, really important for, um, you know, our, our, our country and our civilization, we have to engage in that kind of project. 
you kind of just put your your finger on one of the main subjects of debate on this series, which is uh, I noticed that NAS is looking for new board members and Peter Wood phrased who they're looking for, the type of person very carefully in the letter. And he said, we are not looking for people who want to burn Carthage to the ground and salt the earth. Um, and I think that that's kind of of people who are really deeply concerned about what's going on in the, the university right now. That's really the question is reform from within or without. And it's nice for, for, for change. I talk to a lot of people who say burn Carthage and salt the earth. It's good to hear you say that it can be done from within. <clears throat> it, it has to be, you know, uh, there's, there's no ma- amount of philanthropic, uh, uh, initiatives. I, I love the idea of building, you know, University of Austin. I hope, I hope it succeeds and that more, uh, similar institutions like that exist, but there's no amount of philanthropic ventures that are going to match the power of, uh, the, uh, a budget that comes from the state, a state legislature or an endowment that has, uh, existed for as long as Ivy League school endowments have. So really the only way it's going to happen is if we, um, you know, is if we try to try rather than run away from the universities, I think we need to make make create incentives for for good people who believe in uh, kind of all of these values, like the traditional liberal arts, and academic freedom and open inquiry to run towards the universities, uh, which, of course, right now is a really hard ask because. Uh, you run towards the universities and you can't get a job. And if you get a job, you're you're ostracized and discriminated against on the basis of your viewpoint. So it's a bad environment right now. We need to make that environment better. And we need to tell more people, yes, you should try to be a scientist, a scholar, you know, a philosopher. That is that is valuable. And, um, you know, to whatever extent we can get more people to invest in that project, I think the better. And that's really that's really where our hope should lie. Fantastic. John Seiler, um, Senior Fellow and Director of University Policy at the National Association of Scholars. John, thanks so much for talking with me. Yeah, thank you for having me. This was fun. Been a blast.